Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series on biblical worldview with James Jordan, and here Jordan's going to be discussing the world of the tabernacle. If you are in the Dallas, Texas area, we would like to invite you to our upcoming regional course on hope. Peter Lightheart's going to be teaching this course on November 6th and 7th, and for more information, you can find a link in the show notes. We really hope that you enjoy this time of teaching, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here is James Jordan discussing biblical worldview and the world of the tabernacle. We come now to the period of the Mosaic Tabernacle uh, and the Mosaic worldview, the new heavens and earth that were established at Mount Sinai. And before we do that, we need to get before us a, a fundamental principle uh, of concerning how the world changes <clears throat> from one uh, heavens and earth to the next. And so we want to talk first of all about the breakdown and restructuring of the cosmos. The cosmos, as we said, is a physical order in the world and is also a political order in the world, a polity. And if we are to look, if we, if we look at the Bible, we will see that there is a principle of historic motion and change that runs like this. It's found in Genesis chapter 1 and, and numerous other places. And it's also seen in the Lord's Supper. But it, mean, it shows God taking hold of his creation, breaking it down and restructuring it, and then evaluating it and putting it into effect. Now, the, the action is more complicated than that. And your notes will give you a reference or two to a little bit to more information on this pattern. What's important for us to see is that each time God establishes the heavens and earth, there comes a time when that... Uh, the system that he has set up has run its course and is no longer operating, either due to sin or due to its historical inadequacy. And we will see the heavens and earth begin to break apart and then be restructured. Now, the, the fullest example of that is the flood itself. At the flood, God took hold of the very physical cosmos and tore it down and restructured it and built it back up again into a new world. But it also happens in terms of the symbolic polities uh, that are established and in terms of the uh, political cosmoses that are established is established at various times. And so the heavens and earth are reworked at various stages. Now we saw that after the flood, the system of priest kings like Melchizedek was set up in the world, but that that system uh, began to fall apart. And God takes hold of it and restructures it by calling Abraham from Ur, from uh, a city of priest kings, and establishing him as a, uh, as a leader of a peculiar people, a nation of priests. Now, the climax of this particular heaven and earth comes with Joseph. Uh, remember that the heavens and earth at that time consisted of working under the open sky, the various symbols of the garden and of the kingdom of God were placed under the open sky. There was no uh, visible earthly sanctuary. 
we have the reestablishment of the world and of the home, but not of the earthly sanctuary at this time. And Joseph becomes a climax of that in that we see Joseph providing bread for the world, ministering to the world in that way. Uh, we see that when the people went down into Egypt, they were given a separate land, the land of Goshen, and they continued to maintain a priestly relationship to the nation of Egypt and to the whole world. And finally, we see that there is a unity, a joining between the Abrahamic covenant and the Noahic covenant, a joining between the system of the circumcised holy nation and priest kings, in that Joseph marries the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of Heliopolis. So the priest king of the city of Heliopolis, who was under Pharaoh, of course, uh, gives his daughter to Joseph. And we can assume, and we must assume, that this was a converted man, a God-fearing man who served the true God. And we see a union there between the older priest-king system and the new nation of priests system. And the Abrahamic covenant, uh, Abrahamic heavens and earth are established at that point. A separate people in a separate land ministering to the rest. And so we now have the two environments, world and the land of Eden, established. In fact, Genesis speaks that way. In Genesis chapter 13, verse 10, we read that Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the valley of the Jordan, that it was like the garden of the Lord and like the land of Egypt. Now, that establishes two things. One, the land of Canaan, where Abraham lived, would be like the garden of the Lord, that is, like the garden of Eden or the land of Eden. And same, the same thing is true of Egypt. Egypt is also an Eden-like environment. And when the Israelites go down into Egypt, then they are given the very best of this land, the land of Goshen. And, yes, in verse 11 of chapter 47, Joseph settled his father and brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt in the very best of the land. In verse 27, Israel lived in the land of Egypt in Goshen. So the very best of this Eden-like land is given to Israel. And so what we see in terms of the Abrahamic world system, the cosmos, the heavens and earth at that time, is a land of Eden, which was Canaan and then became Goshen, and then the other lands, and a ministry to the entire world under Joseph's superintendence. Joseph, the descendant of Abraham. God had told Abraham, you will be a father to many nations. And we see in Genesis chapter uh, 45, Joseph says, I have become a father to Pharaoh. That's in chapter 45, verse 8. God has made me a father to Pharaoh. And so in, the, in this, the Abrahamic covenant begins to be fulfilled, that God's people, the priests, priestly nation, would be like fathers to all the other nations of the world and minister to them and draw them in. Now, what happens to this heaven and earth? Uh, we might expect, well, we just will go on to a new stage, and now God will set up the earthly sanctuary, and the world will be restored. And in a sense, that's what happens. But before that happens, the Abrahamic heavens and earth, the patriarchal heavens and earth, break down. Now, how does this breakdown occur? Well, it occurs when the distinction between God's people and the people of the world breaks down. It occurs when the, the boundary between Eden, homeland, and the world uh, collapses. <clears throat> it breaks down when the Abrahamic people 
cease carrying out their priestly ministry to the world. And specifically it happens when the Israelites fall into apostasy and begin to worship the gods of the Egyptians. And we're told this explicitly in Joshua 24, verse 14. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth, and put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. You ever wonder why it was that a Pharaoh arose who did not acknowledge Joseph, and why it was that the people began to be enslaved and uh, began to have to serve pagan nations, it's because they apostatized and rejected the Lord. And they rejected their specific special ministry to the nations, their evangelistic task, and as a result, the heavens and the earth collapsed. The polity that God had established collapsed. I have diagrammed this for you in diagram number 11. You can see the relationship between Eden and the world, and then the breakdown of that relationship as the world moves back and the heavens and the earth collapse. Now, what happens next, and we'll see this again in history, uh, is that there is a beginning of a restructuring before there is an official restructuring. The official inauguration of the new heavens and earth will come at Mount Sinai. But before that time, even before God takes hold of the people and restructures them, uh, we'll find that they begin to restructure themselves. And this is an important principle, that there is a, a, an anticipation of the new heavens and earth each time. The new heavens and the new earth do not just come um, without an anticipation of their basic principles. <clears throat> In Exodus 18, we'll talk about elders and we'll talk about the tabernacle. In Exodus 8, chapter 18... The Lord tells Moses through uh, Jethro that he is to select out men from all the people, able men who fear God, and place these as elders over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens, and let them judge the people. That's in Exodus 18:21 and 22. But the fact is, there were already elders among the Israelite people. We see this in Exodus chapter 3, verse 16. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them... And similarly, over in chapter 4, uh, verse 29, Then Moses and Aaron went and assembled all the elders of the sons of Israel. Well, where do these elders come from? There's nothing about elders back in Genesis. And we're still in the Abrahamic heavens and earth, although they have collapsed. But what we see is that the, the organization by families has begun to be replaced by a more national type of organization, at least uh, tribally, there are elders within each tribe, and that's because of the great growth of a number of people. Even so, what we see is the beginning of a restructuring of the heavens and the earth. The, we, we now have elders positioned in the heavens, the political heavens, ruling over the people, instead of just patriarchs uh, ruling over the people. And the other thing that we ought to note is that is the tabernacle itself. We are used to thinking that Moses went up on the mountain, uh, got the information from the tabernacle, and brought it down, and suddenly, for the first time, there was a special tent put up, which would be a house for God, and a place where the people would gather outside for worship and sacrifice. Up to this point, we tend to think, well, they worshipped at altars. Well, but that's not entirely true. Uh, here again, there has already been an anticipation and the people have already established a special house 
for God, a special tent, uh, while they were in Egypt. And exactly how this came to pass, we don't know. But sometime during that period, uh, the Holy Spirit moved on them to, uh, to create a special separate place that would be the center of their uh, worship. And we see this operating in Exodus chapter 33. Before the tabernacle is built, which is it's built and established in chapter 40, yet in chapter 33, uh, starting in verse 7, we find that there was already a special tent of worship. Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, a good distance from the camp. He called it the tent of meeting. Well, later on, the tabernacle will be called that. It came about that everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting that was outside the camp. It came about whenever Moses went out to the tent that all the people would arise and stand, each at the entrance of his tent, and gaze after Moses until he entered the tent. It came about whenever Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent. The Lord would speak with Moses. When the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, the people would arise and worship, each at the entrance of his tent. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face. Well, later on when the tabernacle is built, the cloud will come down and fill the tabernacle, and Moses won't go into that tabernacle, it'll only be Aaron. But at this point, Aaron has not been consecrated as a priest. The new tabernacle has not been built with all of its elaborate cosmic symbolism that we're going to look at in just a minute. We just have some type of a tent of meeting that already existed. Now, the principle I'm trying to get across is that... At the, as God, when God sets up a new heavens and a new earth, it goes along for a while, but then because of human sin and because of the development of history, because of both factors, the heavens and earth begin to wear thin. And as they wear old like a garment, then they are shaken out and changed and transformed into a new heavens and earth. And uh, this is a process that begins sort of as an, in an evolutionary fashion. As the old heavens and earth collapse, uh, people instinctively begin to do things in a new and different way that anticipates what God himself will do. And so God himself is going to restructure the nation in terms of elders and judges, as we'll see, in terms of the polity of the heavens and earth. And God himself is going to establish a tabernacle as a tent of meeting that is going to have a very specific function. But these things are anticipated. Well, we've looked then at the principle of breaking down and restructuring, and we'll see it again uh, each time we come to a new heavens and earth. Now I want to call your attention to a passage that explicitly states that the Mosaic polity was a new heavens and earth. That passage is Isaiah 51, verse 16. And I have put my words in your mouth, and have covered you with the shadow of my hand, to establish the heavens, to found the earth, and to say to Zion, you are my people. Now, in context, this is referring to the Exodus event. Let's look back at verse 9. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not thou who cut Rahab in pieces? That's a reference to Egypt. Who pierced the dragon? Was it not thou who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a pathway for the redeemed to cross over? So we're talking about the Exodus here. We're just using symbolic language. So the ransomed of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion, just as they did before. All right. So in verses 9 and 10, we have a reference to passing through the Red Sea, and that was when God 
cut up the old world and established a new one. And he goes on to say, you see, in verses 15 and 16, I am the Lord who stirs up the sea and his waves roar, and I have put my words in your mouth and have covered you with the shadow of my hand to plant the heavens and to found the earth. Okay? To plant the heavens. That language comes from Exodus chapter 15, verse 17. Let's look back there. Exodus 15, verse 17. We find that in chapter 14, we've passed through the Red Sea. And in chapter 15, we have the song about the Red Sea. And what is the climax of the song, verse 17? Thou wilt bring them and plant them in the mountain of thine inheritance. The place, O Lord, which thou hast made for thy dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which thy hands have established. And so the idea clearly is that there is a new planting, and Isaiah says this new planting is a new heavens and a new earth. A new planting of the heavens, and uh, we'll see what that means, and a new founding of the earth. Well, we shouldn't be surprised at this. This is the concept that we've seen before. But I did want to call your attention to the verse there that actually uses this language of a new heavens and a new earth in connection with the covenant God made at Mount Sinai. Now, he says that they were planting a new heavens, a planting of a heavens there in Isaiah. And here it says, a planting of a sanctuary in the mountain of thine inheritance. The idea that's new, what makes the heavens new, is the establishment of the earthly sanctuary. And so now we have a restored world uh, that's greater than the one before. Now, under the Noahic arrangement, we had the world rebuilt, and then it fell apart. Under the Abrahamic system, we had the world and the home rebuilt until it fell apart. And now we have world, home, and sanctuary reestablished until they fall apart in the time of Samuel. No longer will there be many sanctuaries and many altars as there were in the patriarchal period, because now an earthly sanctuary has been established. There will be one sanctuary. But that sanctuary is portable. The tabernacle can move from place to place. And what will change with the Davidic heavens and earth is that there will be a sanctuary, the temple, which cannot be moved from place to place. So that will be yet another heavens and earth, another change. But we're not to that yet. We are in the Mosaic heavens and earth. And we are with the tabernacle, the earthly sanctuary, which as we have seen, the planting of this sanctuary is said to be the planting of heavens. And this leads us then to the tabernacle, which we see in diagram 12. Let's look then at the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a heavenly house placed in the midst of a cosmic order. And that's what diagram 12 shows us. The Hebrews would have understood that the tabernacle was an image of heaven. That's not as clear to us because we're not used to thinking in biblical imagery. But the book of Hebrews tells us explicitly that this was the case. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 23 says, speaking of the rituals, Therefore it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, blood of bulls and goats. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a copy of the true one, 
but into heaven itself. Alright, so he explicitly says that the tabernacle is a copy of heaven. In chapter 8, verse 5, it says that the work of the Old Testament is a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses is warned when he is about to erect the tabernacle. See, God says, that you make all things according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. All right, so that, again, uh, Moses is on the mountain, he sees the pattern in heaven, and he puts it down on the earth in terms of a sanctuary. But the tabernacle is a heaven model. Now, what are these things that are in heaven and that are symbolized in the heavenly tent on earth? Well, chapter 9 of Hebrews verses 1 to 5 gives us a brief sketch. Now, even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and an earthly sanctuary, which, as we've seen, is a copy of the heavenly sanctuary. There was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. And behind the second veil there was a tabernacle that's called the Holy of Holies, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant. Actually, the golden altar of incense is before the veil, but uh, that's uh, understood here. The Ark of the Covenant, which was inside, covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna, and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant, and above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat, but of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now, <clears throat> that leads us to uh, a fairly obvious observation about the structure of the tabernacle. If the tabernacle represents the heavens, and there are two environments there, uh, two heavens, then the area around the tabernacle would be the garden. That is, the courtyard would be the garden, and the land of Israel would be the land of Eden, and then the world outside would be the world. So we have five environments, basically. We have two heavens, and then we have the garden, and then we have the homeland, Eden, and then we have the world. Now, to understand the tabernacle, let's look very briefly at the curtains and veil that were inside of it. If we were to take the time, and we won't in these lectures because we just don't have time to, to flip through and look up every verse, but if we were to study Exodus chapter 25 to 40, we would find that on the inside of the tabernacle it was a curtain covering the ceiling and the walls, which was woven of blue and purple and red, or scarlet. These are the colors of the sky. And it meant that if you stood inside the tabernacle, you were surrounded by the sky uh, on the ceiling and on the walls so that you were positioned uh, in the sky, in the heavens. Blue, of course, is the primary color of the sky, but purple and red are colors that appear with sunset and sunrise. Also embroidered in this curtain uh, were cherubim, which are, of course, heavenly beings. And so if you were standing inside the tabernacle, you would be standing in heaven. You'd be surrounded by the sky and surrounded by cherubim. It would be as if you were floating up in the sky and on all sides, well, not on the floor, but on the sides and on the ceiling, you're surrounded by the sky. Now, the inner and outer tabernacle, the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place, were divided by a veil made of the same stuff. 
the veil was of sky colors with cherubim on it, which established a division between the two heavens. Now, what is this division between the two heavens? Well, we can see it in a couple of passages that show us somewhat less symbolic, more visionary experience of the same distinction. In Exodus chapter 24, we read that Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up to have a covenant meal with the Lord on Mount Sinai. And in Exodus 24 verse 10 it says, They saw the God of Israel, and under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire, blue, as clear as the sky itself. So what happened? Well, they went up on the mountaintop, and as they looked up, they saw the firmament heavens, the blue sky, and on the other side of the firmament heavens, they saw into the heaven of heavens, they saw God positioned above the blue firmament, so that there was a veil between them and God, and there was a veil between the sky and God, so that the firmament heavens were on one side of the veil, and then there was the blue firmament, and then there is the ultimate heaven. The blue firmament is the veil. You see, the the distinction between the holy of holies and the holy place is the distinction between the highest heavens and the firmament heavens, and between the two of them is the blue sky, the firmament itself. This is also seen in Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 26. Ezekiel sees the same basic thing. Ezekiel 1, 26. Above the firmament that was over their heads that is, the heads of the cherubim, there was something resembling a throne like lapis lazuli in appearance. That's blue again. And on that which resembled a throne high up was the figure of the appearance of a man. So again, there are these cherubim who are at this point positioned in the firmament heavens. The firmament is above their heads and then the throne of God. Now that is the veil, the veil that separates the firmament heavens from the highest heavens. It's not the only veil in the tabernacle. There's also a veil in the front door that separates the heavens from the earth and from the garden. And all these separations have to do with the sin of man and man's inability to draw near to God unless Jesus Christ escorts him in. But this establishes for us uh, the what is going on in the tabernacle. The tabernacle is an image of heavenly things, but since there are two heavens... Uh, the highest heavens and the firmament heavens, then there are two environments in the tabernacle. Let's look then at these five environments. They are the five environments that we found in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. The heaven, the firmament heaven, the garden, the land, and the world. Well, the Holy of Holies uh, is a copy of the highest heaven. And in the highest heaven are the cherubim that guard the throne of God. Uh, generally are pictured as two or four in number and they are always associated with the Holy of Holies with the highest heaven itself. Now they can come down into the world as we saw in Ezekiel's vision uh, we see the cherubim come down on the other side of the firmament and support the firmament as God's throne and move it from place to place. But generally speaking they surround the throne and render praise day and night as we see in Revelation 4 and 5. And they are in the highest heaven. Now, the next environment is the holy place, which represents the firmament heaven. And position in the holy place in the tabernacle are three objects. The lampstand, the bread, showbread, and the altar of incense, which is actually 
right at the veil between the two. Now, it's not immediately apparent uh, what these things mean. My speculation is that the lampstand uh, has to do with the sun, the uh, sun and the moon and the stars, which are there to give light on the earth and are positioned in the firmament heavens. Uh, Here we have an equivalent thing in the holy place, uh, a sun in that environment. And then there is the bread, and if we think back to the Exodus, we remember that God rained bread out of heaven for them, manna, and there's possibly a connection here to the bread that comes down from heaven, from the firmament heavens. And then there is the altar of incense, which has to do with prayers, and prayers ascend from the earth uh, through the heavens and right to the throne of God. And so the altar of incense is placed right at the veil, and uh, it seems to signify the prayers of man as he draws near to God, uh, he can at least get to the firmament heavens and then the prayers are carried on through, by way of smoke through the veil and into the highest heavens. Now that's somewhat speculative, but we, we do definitely seem to be in the firmament heaven. Now the meaning of all of this is that Israel is a heavenly people through its priests. Only the Aaronic priests were allowed to go into the holy place. They could go there day by day. No one was ever allowed to go into the highest heaven where the cherubim were. The high priest was to go in once a year. He and he alone. Then he had to come right back out. And this situation didn't change until Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sins on the altar outside the gate and then ascended through the heavens and was taken up in a cloud in the firmament heaven and went into the highest heavens and there passed through the cherubim and sat down at the right hand of God the Father where he had been before his incarnation. And at that point, then, a man has passed through all these barriers and humanity can now go through the firmament heavens and into heaven to the very throne of God through prayer. So by means of the prayer of incense of prayer, we can draw near to God any time. And we don't just draw to the door of the tabernacle we can go into the heavens and not just the firmament heavens by prayer, but into the highest heavens and past the cherubim right straight to the Father. And that, of course, is a, a tremendous change in the polity that we get in the uh, new heavens and earth of the new covenant. But we're not there yet. It's just by way of contrast that it's worth pointing that out. But this meant that Israel was a heavenly people. It did have access to heaven, even though it was very limited. And this would help them in their mission to minister to the world. So God's erection of the new heavens and the new earth was very important to their witness. Now the third environment was the court around the tabernacle. The courtyard corresponded to the Garden of Eden, the earthly sanctuary. And the two items that were found out there, the altar and the labor of cleansing, really uh, do help us to see that fairly clearly. The labor is a corresponds to the rivers that flowed out of Eden. Now there's no outflow because the spirit hasn't been outpoured and the kingdom is locked up in the old covenant because of the sin of man. But in Ezekiel's vision in chapter 47, he sees the labor turned on its side and a river flowing out to transform the world. And so based on that passage, we can see that the labor of cleansing corresponded to the rivers that flowed out of the sanctuary of Eden, the Garden of Eden. Similarly, there is an altar there. And remember that an altar is made of earth and is an earthly sanctuary. That was the case 
with Abraham and now much more the case with this courtyard around the tabernacle. The altar is now fixed. Well, it's not permanently fixed, but it is placed next to the tabernacle and there are to be no other altars in operation while the tabernacle is standing. Uh, It needs to be done right at the gate of heaven itself, the doorway of the tabernacle. Now, all the Israelites had access to come into this courtyard. They were not allowed to go into the heavenly environment, but they could come into the garden. We see that in Leviticus chapter 1, where the sacrifices are described, and it talks about the offerer and how he had to come in and kill the animal there in the garden area, in the uh, earthly sanctuary, in the court. So, everyone had access to that garden sanctuary. Now, this is not the only sanctuary in Israel. Uh, The Levitical cities, especially those that were set apart as cities of refuge, were also garden sanctuaries in the land. Remember that we saw that the Garden of Eden was supposed to grow and develop into the city of God. And we also saw that if Adam had gone uh, out into the land of Eden, he would probably have established other sanctuaries and places of worship. And so it was in Israel as well. There were synagogues, places of worship in many places, because the people were supposed to gather every Sabbath day for worship. And in particular, there were the Levitical cities, which were maintained by those who were related to the Aaronic priests. And these would be somewhat uh, places of special ministry to Israel. And then there were the cities of refuge themselves, which were actually formed sanctuaries that people could flee to and be separated from the land and from the tribulations of the land in times of distress. And so there were many garden sanctuaries put throughout the land to indicate the restoration of the sanctuary privilege. But only one of them had this heaven model in it. Only one of them was the holy mountain, the place where you could really ascend and get next to heaven and offer your sacrifices and get a hearing from God and draw near. And so there was something special about the courtyard of the tabernacle wherever it was placed. The next environment is the land itself. And the land was set apart only for God's people. Uh, Gentiles could not move there and live. They could not own property in the land because every 50 years the land reverted to its original owners in the year of Jubilee. We find that in Leviticus chapter 25. In the Jubilee year, all the land went back to its owners and which meant that unless you were an Israelite, you could not permanently own property in Israel. The land was set apart as a, a land of Eden only for the nation of priests. And so as a holy land, we see that it's distinct from the world. Now, outside the land, finally, there was the world of the Gentiles. And um, they were ministered to by the nation of priests. And we have every reason to believe that there were plenty of Gentile converts in the Old Testament, uh, such as Jonah's Ninevites. They did not move into the land of Israel. They did not circumcise themselves and become Jews. But... They were Gentile converts who were ministered to by the priestly nation. Well, this is the the symbolic cosmic structure of the new heavens and earth established by Moses. And we've only scratched the surface of it. Uh, All the details that go on and on in the books of Numbers and Leviticus concerning the arrangement of the camps and everything else plays into this ordered, structured cosmos, this new heavens and earth that was established at Mount Sinai. 
But the important thing for us to see is that people now have access to a sanctuary, the garden as well as the land is reestablished, and in the midst of the garden is a model of the two heavens themselves, indicating that man will eventually be given access to them as well in Jesus Christ. Well, finally, we want to glance briefly at the polity of this new heavens and earth, because there is an advancement beyond the patriarchal arrangement. We saw that in the time before the flood, the world was ruled by strong men, that after the flood, uh, it was ruled by priest kings and city-states. During the Abrahamic period, God set up the patriarchs to govern his people and to lead the world by example. Now we have yet another polity. We don't have patriarchs anymore, although there are princes of the tribes, and that was probably a hereditary office. We find very little about them. What seems to function most importantly are the elders. They are positioned in the heavenlies. Uh, And then the judges. The judge was sort of the supreme elder in the land. There might be more than one at a time as we study the book of Judges. It's hard to put them all in chronological order. It would seem that some were functioning in the north and some were functioning in the south. But elders, uh, excuse me, judges did function in Israel. And the judge could blow the trumpet and summon all the tribes together to deal with an emergency. But there was no standing central federal government in Israel under the judges. No permanent central government. The rule was ad hoc. Uh, dealing with problems that came up and the administration of the kingdom was decentralized. Now all of this will change with the new heavens and new earth that will be inaugurated in the time of Samuel when the old heavens and the old earth breaks apart. But that's for the next lecture. What we want to see now is that God gave the people his law in tremendous detail and organized the kingdom in 13 tribes without a central government and without a king over them, and without a standing army. So this was the arrangement of the heavens and the earth from the Mosaic period on down to the end of the book of Judges. And then we will find that in the time of Samson and Samuel, the heavens and earth are torn apart, and there will have to be a new heavens and a new earth established. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.